All right, uh, if you brought your Bibles with you this afternoon, I'd like you to turn uh, there now to the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read just the final verses of Matthew 28, uh, beginning at verse 16 to the end. You also find uh, the text um, behind me also on the screen. Uh, I want to say um, a couple of things uh, before we uh, read um, the Bible uh, together. What we're going to do beginning um, this afternoon and hopefully we'll go on through the next number of months is we're going to begin, well, a multi-month series on a document that I'm assuming many of us are somewhat familiar with. Maybe some of us have never even heard of this document before, but the document is, is, is called very simply um, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it was a document that goes back many years, all the way back to 1563, and it has kind of stood the twist of, uh, test of time as an instructional tool in the church. And what, what a catechism is, is it's simply uh, a systematic way, based upon question and answers, of teaching the basics of the Christian faith. You know, we, we just confessed the Apostles' Creed, right, not long ago. Well, what the catechism does in part is it kind of explains those basic doctrines for us so that we remain rooted in the faith. So tonight we're going to begin a series and it is simply entitled, The Power of Catechism. And you know, usually when you, when, you, when you throw out the word catechism, especially for a lot of us who've had some exposure to it, sometimes there's a little bit of a collective groan. You know, it's like, it's like a catechism really. A, what I want for us in the next number of months is for, for really catechism to live within us. I just want it to live. And I, be, I begin the first sermon on, called the, the Power of Catechism because, you know, when, when the Bible talks about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you ever notice how often it, it talks about the power of the gospel? For instance, the Apostle Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation to everyone who believes. Well, there's a certain power, actually, to the catechism when it's preached well or taught well, I'll do my best, okay? But I want it to live within us, both as adults and also as children, okay? And then the second thing what we're going to do, and this comes from the leadership here of the, of the consistory, the, the, the pastor and the, and the elders here, is what we, we want to have a shorter service in the afternoon with a bit of a shorter sermon. And then what I'm gonna do from week to week is I'm gonna put together three or four questions that will provide a little bit of fodder or substance for us to discuss together. And um, I think that'll be a very interesting time. Other churches are doing it to great, great benefit. So we're going to try that, and we're going to see how that goes. And the questions I'm going to pose at the very end, I'm not going to do it right after the preaching, well, maybe I will, but at, or, or at the very end of the service, just to kind of give you a taste of some of the kind of the questions that we'll be dealing with together as we discuss them um, uh, at some point in, in future services. Okay, enough by way of that. I want to draw your attention now to the Bible. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. The context is this. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is not dead. He's risen. After he rose from the dead, he went on this earth and preached about the kingdom of God and gave evidences of his resurrection for 40 days. After 40 days, he ascended into heaven. He's about ready to ascend into heaven, but he has something to say to his disciples before he does. 
Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. But notice, some doubted. Hard to believe somebody actually rose from the dead, right? And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you look at the overhead, there you have what is called the Great Commission, right? Or as I like to call it, the Great Mission Commission. So before Jesus ascends, he says basically to his disciples, I have a task for you to do. I want you to take my gospel, I want you to take my good news, and I want you to bring it to the world. That they may know who I am and that they may believe unto eternal life. The Great Mission Commission. Elsewhere, Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of John, as the Father has sent me into the world, now I send you. Now you take a look at the Great Commission. I want you to focus on the very last verse, verse 20. I want to focus tonight on that phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let me begin this afternoon by asking you a very simple question. Who's teaching you? Okay, Who is informing your mind? Who is shaping your heart? Who's, if I may say it, if I may put it this way, who's catechizing you? Who's formally instructing you in your beliefs and how you should live? Because every day we're being catechized. I see a number of younger children here. Parents, we have to realize that our kids constantly are being catechized just as we are being catechized by the world. Every time you take out your phone and you look at that phone, you're being catechized. I would ask you to do something at the end of this day. I want you to take a look at your search history over the last couple of days and see what you've been looking up. That's what you're being catechized by. That's what you're being shaped by. We're all being shaped in some way. Okay? And it's either we're either being shaped by Jesus or being shaped by something else. We're either being shaped by the church of which we're a part of or being shaped by something else, maybe something in the world. But we're all being shaped by something. I want to read you something. I want to begin with this. Uh, I want to read just a brief excerpt of... Uh, an article that I read on um, an online site, online site called the Gospel Coalition. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with the Gospel Coalition. Coalition, maybe you're not. If you're not, get online, start reading from the Gospel Coalition. There's a wonderful, good articles. You're not always going to agree with everything, but a lot of it you will. And a lot of these articles are pretty substantive and also... Um, they relate to some aspect of the culture and how we as Christians are to navigate the culture together. These are articles, I want to state this too, don't go into it thinking that it's going to be like some church magazine where you have long, long articles maybe written by an elder or a pastor of the church. They're all pretty short articles. You can read them probably within 10 minutes. Gospel Coalition is called. There was an article in the Gospel Coalition written by a man named Kevin 
DeYoung called The World is Catechizing Us Whether We Realize It or Not. And here's an excerpt from what he wrote. And he, he clues into the Olympics. He says, I love the Olympics. I got up early and stayed up late to watch whatever I could in real time. But something was different this time around. And judging from conversation I've had with many others, I'm not the only one who noticed. You couldn't watch two weeks of the Olympics, or even at times even two minutes, without being catechized in the so-called truths of the sexual revolution. Earlier in the summer, I watched parts of the Olympics, and you would have thought the whole event was a commercial for rainbow flags. And yet the packaging of the Olympics was even more deliberate. Every day we were taught to celebrate men weightlifting as women, or to smile as a male diver talked about his husband. Every commercial break was sure to feature some couple, a man putting on makeup, or a generic ode to expressive individualism. The Christian family, he goes on to write, the Christian church and Christian school must not assume that the next generations will accept the conclusions that seem so obvious to older generations. We must talk about the things our kids are already talking about among themselves. We must disciple. We must be countercultural. We must prepare our children to love and teach what the Bible really teaches and what it means. We must pass on right beliefs and the right reasons for those beliefs. Finally, he writes this. The world is already busy promoting its catechism. The only question is whether we will get busy promoting ours. Our what? Our catechism. This is why what we do in our afternoon service. We do it for us as adults, we do it for our kids, so that fundamentally we are shaped not only in the truths of the Bible but in a Christian worldview, so that we know how to live not only apart from the world but in the world and also that we might have answers for the world. Okay? Now, once again, I want you to look above. The Great Mission Commission. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says to his disciples, you get out there and you make disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple... Oftentimes when we think of a disciple, probably we think of, well, that's just a person who follows Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Others have described being a disciple as an apprentice of Jesus. Can you know what an apprentice is? Maybe some of you have gone through an apprenticeship program where you're learning a trade, and rather than sitting down in a classroom, you spend time with the person who's teaching you, and they say, I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to show you how to do that. Now just watch me as I do this and that. When, when you're involved in that kind of program, you're an apprentice. You're learning from a master. You're learning from someone with experience. A disciple is someone who is learning from Jesus. They're an apprentice of Jesus so they know how to follow him and ultimately imitate him. That should be the greatest desire of every one of us here, to be imitators of Christ, to know him, to love him, to imitate him. That's what it means to be a disciple. What does the Great Commission say? If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to be one who's baptized, and you're one, you're one who's going to be taught. You're not going to be a good disciple, you're not going to be a good follower if you're not taught something, if you don't have some substance to your faith, right? So, 
we look at this great mission commission, what I want to do in connection with what it has to say about discipleship is I want to, I want to pick it apart a little bit, okay? And you can look at the words on the screen as I go through it. First of all, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on an earth. Jesus is king of the universe. He's Lord of the universe. And as Lord of the universe, Jesus says to his disciples a number of things. First of all, he says this. He says, I want you to go. I want you to go out there. I want you to bring my message out there to the world. He says, it's a very simple thing. But he says, go. He didn't say, wait. <laughs> wait for them to come to you. He says, you go out to them. There's a lot of churches, actually, in the world from across the denominational spectrum who are either passive in their ministry. They just worship together. They take care of their own, and that's about it. And they call it good. Jesus says, no. It's not good. Well, it's good to take care of one another and love one another, but it's not, su it's not sufficient. Jesus says, you have a task in the world. It's the mission task. And he says, I want you to, to go. And that means, more, that means more than just, well, when we take offerings, we're going to take an offering from some missionaries, like John and Rene Deleu, you know, give money for them and for their ministry or other missionaries that we know, maybe in Brazil or what have you. And once you give money, you can call it good. You've done your duty. Uh-uh. Should we give to missionaries or on the front lines? Absolutely. But we all have a missionary task. Jesus says, go. And by the way, we're going to move quickly through the other ones. But by the way, if you see someone new in the church, you don't wait for them to come up to you. You go up to them. That's also part of the commission. You go, go, go and do what? What's the commission of Jesus to his disciples? To the church. He says, make disciples. The word make there, I'm going to get a little technical, but I'm going to be simple in my explanations of the, the technical stuff. The word make is actually in the imperative mood in the original language. What that means is it's actually a command, an urgent command. Jesus says, I want you to go, and by the way, I want you, and this is a command, to go out and make disciples. What that tells us, that this is not an option for any local church. Some churches feel like, you get a sense like, well, th th this is an option for them. No, Jesus is not an option. You need to go and you need to make disciples, make followers. And actually, in the original language again, it's not go make disciples, but Jesus literally says, having gone, go make disciples. See the difference? Jesus is basically saying, when he's saying, having gone, now go make more disciples, he's saying, you've already been involved in mission. He's saying that to his disciples. You've been preaching the kingdom of God out in the world. You've already been doing it. Now, continue to do it. But here's the difference. After I rise from the dead, I'm going to give you my spirit. And the spirit is going to be poured out upon you. And it's that spirit who's going to give you the power and the boldness to actually go out in the world and make disciples. Brothers and sisters, we're on this side of the ascension. The Spirit has been poured out. The Spirit has been given us to give, been given us to have the power and the guts, if you will, to go out and make disciples of the nations, to be aggressive, to be active, not passive. The other things that Jesus mentions here, he says, I want you to go and make disciples. Notice what he says up there of the nations. The nations. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, first and foremost, I want you to go out there and clean up the theology of other Christians. Because God knows the Pentecostals, they're a little bit wacky, right? And we know the Baptists, they don't baptize babies, right? And so we're here, we're going to clean up their theology. Now, 
That's not to be said that there's not room for Christians to sharpen one another, and it doesn't mean that there's not room to um, refine people's understanding so that they conform better to the scriptures, right? So you think of the book of Acts, right, where you have Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team. Do you remember that in the book of Acts? And what they did is they came alongside a man who was a, whose name was Apollos, who the Bible says was mighty in the scriptures, but they came alongside of him in order to better correct him in his understanding of the word. There's a place for that, but that's not the emphasis here in the Great Commission. Jesus says, I want you to go out to the nations. In other words, I want you to go out to people who don't know me, who don't know what it's like to have the forgiveness of sins, what it means to have eternal life, what it means to have forgiveness. Go out to them, he says. Go out to them. That's our task as pathway. Okay? And then Jesus goes on to say, once you make disciples, once you make disciples, then, and, and essentially, once they have repented and believed, then what do you do? He says, do two things. You baptize them because they were not reared in what we call a covenant Christian home. What you need to do is you need to baptize them whereby they receive the mark of Christ's ownership or God's ownership upon them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's more to that. But also, he says, having then been baptized, you need to teach them. And the one final thing I want to say about the Great Commission is that that, that word teach or teaching them is in the present continuous tense. In other words, what he's saying is once they've been baptized, you just don't teach them for a few sessions and call it good and send them on their way like you would a kid who's first learning how to ride a bike, right? Your parents have that. You learn a kid, you finally take off the training wheels, and it's now it's, it's go time, right? And you put them on the bike, and kids, maybe you remember this or not, you push that bike along, you push it back, and then you finally give it that final push, you know, and start praying. The kid's not going to fall over, right? And sometimes they, they keep pedaling, pedaling. That's what you do in teaching. You teach them, not just by pushing them into saying, okay, you're on your own, but you continue to teach throughout all their years. This is why we take teaching and preaching seriously here, because we want to follow the Great Commission. We want to follow the words of Jesus, who, who wants us to be taught throughout our lives, not just in our childhood, but through our lives even as adults, the great commission of Christ. This is why, in light of what Jesus teaches in the great commission, this is why, in a sense, we launch our boats on a catechetical sea. This is, this is not an empty tradition, what we're doing here. This is not just like a carryover from the past of what's been going on in the past for many, many years. But really, it's part and parcel of the discipleship ministry of the church, that you and I, as we hold hands together, learn what it means to be followers and imitators of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, and uh, not everybody knows this, but catechism actually has its roots in the Bible. A lot of times, I think, for those of, of us who grew up with it, we think, well, this has just been a, a tradition of of some churches anyway, for, for many, many years, indeed centuries, but actually goes all the way back to the Bible. You know, when, when I've been in the ministry and, and I talk to people who are, who are not familiar with some of the circles of churches of which we've been a part of, and, we, and, and I use the word catechism, like we, we teach our kids, we catechize our kids, and they're like, you know what Roman Catholics do? I go, yeah, that's true, but we do it too. And the reason why we do it is not because it's just a tradition of ours. It's actually rooted in the Bible. Now, at this point, 
Can we have um, that passage from Luke? Are you able to put that up there? Is it in there? I don't think so. Should be in the afternoon. Okay. Okay. Then, then there it is. Okay, that's important. I, I, sorry about that, but I wanted to be up there because I want you to see the words, and I just didn't want to read them. You'll notice that this is the very beginning of the Gospel of uh, Luke. And um, it, is, it is addressed to a man, as you can see toward the bottom there, is a man named Theophilus. The word theo comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and philos from phileo, which means love. So his name simply means a lover of God. He's probably a convert to the Christian faith, maybe a benefactor to the gospel writer Luke. Luke is addressing him. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us as the apostles, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. You know what Luke did as a profession, right? He was a doctor. Doctors are concerned about, doctors are usually bright individuals and they're concerned about details. Well, that was Luke. So Luke paid close attention to a lot of detail during the ministry of Jesus Christ and recorded it. He, he writes, I follow all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most the uh, excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been, now italicize the word taught. The word taught in the Greek language is, is a form of the word didaskalia. That's not the word that's used there, that's commonly used for the word taught or teaching. It's katekeo. Sound, kids will go, katekeo? That sounds like catechism. Yeah, that's where we get the word from. You know what katekeo really, really refers to? It's, it's really a sounding down, a sounding down of truths. It's kind of like, um, kids, when you, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you have submarines that are in the water, or ships even. Let's stay with ships. And what ships do is they send down soundings, sound waves that go to the very bottom of the ocean and then those sound waves bounce back up again and that's how they determine the depth of the water well in what happens in catechism training and what's going to happen after our worship service and discussion time is it's it's a kind of question answer time questions are asked you get answers and in a catechism class that elders teach or that i teach or maybe use parents teach you ask kids a question and then you want to get their answer. So they give you an answer, and you listen to that answer. And then you go, hmm, it's either a good answer, it's a right answer, or it's a wrong answer, or it's a kind of right answer. And so what you do is you respond to that answer, and you say, well, you should maybe think about this, or how about that? Anyone else have any thoughts on this? And you go back and forth, and that's how iron sharpens iron. That's how we grow in the faith. It's called, in a sense, it's called what's called a Socratic method. It's a question-answer. That's how we catechize. That's how our children grow in faith. That's how we as adults grow in faith. But isn't it interesting, the Bible, it was this man, Theophilus, of whom we know very little about, who was actually formally instructed over a period of time in the Christian faith. So again, catechism isn't just an empty tradition. It comes from 
the Bible. Now, Catechale finds itself not only in the Bible, but it finds itself also in the history of the church. And especially during the time of what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now again, many of us are familiar with that term. I don't know how much we know about that. There may be some here this afternoon who are going, what in the world was a Protestant Reformation? Basically, it was a back-to-Bible movement during the time, especially of the 16th century, and it was a, a response of many Christians to what they felt were additions to the teachings of the Bible formulated by the Roman Catholic Church over many years. It was a time of refinement in response to what they felt was a decline in, in uh, uh, doctrine as well as morals in the Catholic Church. I'm not going to get all into that. But as, the, as, as this back-to-Bible movement emerged, people needed to understand because the Bible was oftentimes kept from them, they need to understand the contents of the Bible. Well, how do you do that? You're instructed then in the context of the Bible through what we call catechisms and confessions. I don't know if you know this, but during the time of the 15, uh, uh, 1500s, particularly just one decade, the 1560s, over 60 catechisms and confessions were written as summaries of Christian doctrine. Why is that? Again, because the Protestant churches wanted their people to be disciples of Jesus, to understand the word of God and to be followers of Christ and to serve him all the days of their lives. Yet sadly, this isn't always the case today. Many people have never been formally catechized. In, in many uh, years of ministry, I've, I've sat down with various people who have come to churches where I have pastored, and they have come out of sometimes not circles that many of us are familiar with, but they kind of come out of what we call broader evangelical circles, and for some reason they would come to the church where we were at. Maybe it was because of preaching and teaching or perspective or what have you. And invariably, I go out with these people, we have coffee, or we meet at the church, we sit down in a comfortable room at the church, and after a while, I'll ask them a simple question, and that's this. Have you ever been formally instructed in the Christian faith, in a systematic, ongoing way? And then they stop, and they kind of look at you, and they're kind of, they're, they're, they're wondering, what, what are you exactly asking? And I'm saying, I'm not asking if you've ever heard biblical preaching. I'm not asking if you've ever been a part of a Bible study. I'm not asking if you've ever been part of a, if you've ever been in Sunday school as a kid. I'm asking, has anyone, either a pastor or someone in the church, ever sat you down and said, we're going to go through the basics of the faith. Who is God? Who are we? What is sin? What is repentance? What is living faith? What is the church? Why do we need the church? Who is God the Father? Who's God the Son? Who's God the Holy Spirit? Why did Jesus need to be both God and man? What's the significance of that? What happens after we die? You know, all, all these kinds of questions. And you know what they say? Invariably they say, uh-uh. No one's ever taught me that. We're going to correct that. We're going to correct that. We're going to learn together. And we'll have an enjoyable time learning together. Now, I want to leave you with this this afternoon. And that is this. If catechetical training is done well, it has a lot of benefits. I'm going to mention four very quickly. It affects the purity of this church, affects the unity of this church, affects the maturity of this church, and it affects the mission of this church. A lot of times people think of catechism training as just like, well, we just, it's like, it's like, 
distilling information. Yeah, here's what you need to know to be right in Christian doctrine. Well, it should be that, right? But it should be more than that. There's a number of payoffs of catechetical training. Here, here, here they are, very quickly. First of all, it affects the unity of this church. We're a new church just getting off the ground. We need to stay together. And that means not only loving on each other, but it means believing the same things. Because if you don't believe the same things, you ever see that in a church? When you, just, you know, you've got different teachings at play, people start rubbing against each other. And there's fighting, sometimes even within leaderships itself. It's an ugly thing. Unity is a precious thing. And you know what? You've got to work on it. It's just like marriage. You know, husband, wife, called to be one flesh. Don't tell me you, you don't have to work on that in your own marriage. You know, it's a daily, it's a daily thing. Same thing in the church. But when you're, when you're catechizing, when we learn together and we discuss together, we get to be one in our understanding of the faith. We even have, we have three confessional documents in this church, right? We have what's called the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, Belgian Confession, 1561, Cans of Dort, 1618, 1619. These are definitive statements on what we believe in terms of Christian doctrine. Do you remember what they call those three documents? The three forms of what? Unity. Unity. There's a reason for that. Secondly, catechetical teaching, preaching, what that does is it, it enhances not only the unity of the church, but the purity of the church. Because what you believe affects the way you live. At least it should. We want to be grounded so that we lead not only knowledgeable lives, unified lives, but pure lives, pure lives. Two other reasons for catechetical training is this. Not only does it enhance unity, not only does it enhance purity, but it enhances maturity. We want to be mature Christians. Enough of superficial Christianity. You know, we hear this like, the church is a mile wide and an inch deep. We want to be a mile wide and a mile deep. We want to mature. We want to, we want to be mature Christians together. And we want our children to grow up to be mature Christians so they can raise families of their own and, and, and have something to give to the world. And then finally, and this is not something that people oftentimes think about, but catechization, the way we're going to be doing it over the next number of months, affects also the mission of the church. You know why that is? Because on many occasions, people, people will will come to pastors or they come to the leadership of the church and, and the church knows that it should evangelize, that is, speak the gospel, the message of Jesus to the world. But many people, and maybe you're one of them here this afternoon, where you say, I don't know, I feel ill-equipped for the task. I, I just get kind of nervous about it. And then I would ask you, why are you so nervous about it? Why do you feel ill-equipped? And the two answers that oftentimes come up is um, number one, they're afraid of the kind of pushback that they're going to get from people, especially if they're family members or friends. You know, no, none of us, none of us does, no one of us likes pushback or for people to get hostile toward us. But here's the number one reason why people feel ill-equipped for evangelism, because they're not quite sure what to say. And usually what I find out is that you know, I don't think the Lord calls us to have PhDs in theology to be, to, to be good enough Christians, not at all. But, but sometimes even people who have been catechized through the years oftentimes have kind of gone in one ear and out the other. And when, it, when they get to be an adult, they're not as grounded as they would like to be. And therefore, when they get pressed by non-Christians regarding certain questions, they feel ill-equipped to be even answering them. 
So that's what catechism does. And that's what the number of months that we're going to spend together going through this, we're going to root ourselves in the doctrines of the faith so that we might grow in unity, purity, maturity, and mission, and so that we might be like the rain that you hear on the roof where we get to be the kind of people who are going to be a blessing like the rain is to the ground will be a blessing to the people of this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look forward to this time in the, in the, in the coming months where we get to gather together in an afternoon service, have a bit shorter message, Father, in order that we might have a little bit of time to interact with the truths that you have given us. Lord, um, I would ask that you would bless me as I preach slash teach in regard to this series. Lord, we pray for each other that you would open up our hearts, that the doctrines of the faith that many of us grew up with would, would, would come more and more to life in us, and we would cherish the heritage that you have given us, this, this catechetical heritage. So, Father, we pray for that, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.